The difference between Japan and other countries is that there's a shortage of talent, like declining populations, many different reasons contribute to the fact that there's a lack of talent in Japan. And so that drives up prices. And so the fees for our industry are the highest in the world. In Japan, we start at 35%, and 35% is pretty standard. And we go up as high as 60 to 70% for really difficult to find talent. Welcome back to another episode of the Inside Japan podcast, sponsored by jobsinjapan.com, the best place on the internet to find your next job in Japan. I'm Charlie, and on this episode, I'm speaking with Cameron Brett, Managing Director of Ransad Professionals and Technologies. If you're interested in becoming a recruiter or you've become one recently, this episode is going to have a ton of useful information to help you understand why recruiters can make so much money and help their clients at the same time. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much, Cameron, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the recruitment industry in Japan, whether it's different from in other countries, and what kinds of companies there are in Japan that people should be aware of. So, the overall recruitment business itself, the model of recruitment is the same no matter where you go. We have clients who are looking for people to hire, candidates who are looking for jobs. And the recruiter sits in the middle and brokers the transaction. So they introduce the talent or the candidate to the client, and then we receive a fee, which is a percentage of the candidate's first year annual compensation. Now, that's not that we take the fee from the candidate, the fee is paid on top of the salary to, to, to uh, the recruiter. Okay. But basically, that's the same no matter where you go. The difference between Japan and other countries. Is that there's a shortage of talent, like declining populations, many different reasons contribute to the fact that there's a lack of talent in Japan. And so that drives up prices. And so the fees for our industry are the highest in the world. So, for example, wow. Singapore, 15 to 20% is considered typical for a recruitment commission fee. In Japan, we start at 35%. And 35% is pretty standard, and we go up as high as 60 to 70% for really difficult to find talent. Wow, that's incredible. So, I guess like recruiters would make a lot of money, but a lot of that goes to the company, right? So, it's not like whoever finds the person gets this massive, you know, one year salary or something just、right. for finding one person. Right, right, of course. And there are different types of recruitment companies, really, into two major groups. One is called registration style, the other is called search. Registration style companies invest primarily in marketing. And so,、mm -hmm. candidates who are looking for a job right now go and register on that candidate's homepage and they get a job. So, for example, the type of service that you're offering with your homepage, right, where people can actually go and look for jobs.、Um, then there are search style companies that will take a position from a client and then go into the market and search for people, actually, headhunt. Right. And these candidates are often what we call passive candidates. And a passive candidate is somebody who's not really looking for a job, but they're open to talking to a headhunter. Okay. And, and that's probably a lot harder to find, right? Like, you see, I'm sure you have to build up a massive network of people that you know in different industries or、uh, specific industries in Japan. And that, like you said, the, the talent is it's a much smaller talent pool. So you really do have to, like, I guess, go to networking events or, or like, what other ways do you use to find people? Yeah. So, For search style companies, you're right, it's more difficult, and that's why they tend to pay higher commission rates 
to their consultants because there's a higher level of skill required. And usually uh, search style companies will have an entry level position that's called an associate consultant or a researcher. And that person's job is to find people. So they go online, they go to networking events. As you said, they go to trade shows and they exchange business cards. That's kind of all pre-COVID style. But mm-hmm. again, I hope that we'll, we'll be able to do that again in the future, but build up networks of talent pools so that they can connect to their consultants who then are, are going to work directly with the talent and the, and the client. But yeah, it's recruiters are, are networkers are really good at building their network and having a lot of people. And generally we focus on what we say narrow and deep. So you have, a, a, for example, an industry and a specific function within that industry. So mm. for example, gaming, you'll focus on gaming and then within the industry, a specific type of engineer that's in high demand in the industry. And that's those, that's the only area that you focus on and you just go really narrow and deep into that focus. Wow. I see. Okay. So it does get pretty, um, pretty deep, pretty quickly. Um, I imagine like, especially going into those kind of things like gaming or something, I know a few people in the gaming industry in Japan, I'm sure like trying to find the right kind of person who will fit in a company. Cause I, I've, I've seen a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, in Japan, there's a lot of like 2D artists and there's a lot of um, uh, people who are really interested in the sort of like the design aspect. But then when it comes to coding, almost all of the coders are foreign engineers because it's harder to find Japanese who can code at like the highest level. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's one of the reasons why at Ronstad, we have a team that focuses on importing talent into Japan or tapping into the non-Japanese engineer community in Japan. And this is just companies have had to make that shift in their hiring strategy. Because when I started doing this 15 years ago, it was Japanese only on job descriptions. Then it was native level Japanese and then fluent. And then now if you have a really specific skill set that's in high demand, some companies are willing to hire people without Japanese ability. Yeah, yeah. I know quite a few who don't speak Japanese at all, but they they do that kind of work. Um, I wonder how the pandemic, you mentioned the pandemic briefly, like how has that really changed recruitment other than, I guess, not going, not being able to go to like recruiter events or like not being able to meet people in person? Um, how has that changed like the kind of work that you do? And has it really like impacted how much money you can make doing recruiting? So last year, the market itself was highly impacted where a lot of companies went on hiring freezes. So there just wasn't a lot of hiring happening, which did have a big impact uh, on our performance. Luckily, Ronsad, the company I work for, is the largest recruitment company in the world. We're financially very strong. So we were able to weather the storm and come out Mm -hmm. very strong at the end of the pandemic. But a lot of recruitment companies did go out of business. The smaller boutiques went out of business because they couldn't continue to to pay their bills during the pandemic. So that was the one impact. Now that that we're still in the pandemic, but, you know, very different environment than where we were 12 months ago, hiring has picked up. As you said, we can't meet people face to face more difficult to build relationships with people, especially Japan is a high context culture. People have a preference for face-to-face meetings, but we're able to do more meetings because we don't have to travel. Mm. It's very efficient. I don't think it's as effective, but it kind of has balanced itself out. And actually we're having record level performances in terms of revenue, which translates to record level earnings for our consultants as well. So it's a very, uh yeah it's a very good market right now but it's a very different market than we were in uh, 24 months ago 
Yeah. Is it very different from uh, other countries? Because you mentioned bringing people over from like the United States or something for maybe some high demand, but uh, low supply job in Japan. Um, is that still something that's really a struggle? Is it difficult to get my, I know Japan kind of opened up a little bit more to uh, business and, and work travel. Um, is it possible to bring people in from overseas or is that kind of like a no-no? It's not possible at the moment. Okay. It, do it doesn't mean that we've given up on the strategy. We still recruit globally and we have companies that are willing to hire people remotely. So they'll hire somebody on a permanent contract, but that the permanent contract will start when they're able to relocate to Japan and the okay. intern work on a contract basis remotely. And so we have some companies that are doing that. They, that's a relation, I mean, uh, an agreement they come to with the, the talent directly. We're not involved mm -hmm. in that, um, but we're still coordinating the introductions, but really the borders are closed. It's next to impossible to come to Japan um, for any reason and, and, and for new visas. And so we've had to shift the way that we work on those types of Right. Things. Yeah, I really hope that changes soon because it looked like for a while that they were going to start opening up again. And I hope, um, I hope that sort of works itself out uh, pretty soon. Um, yeah, so um, what kind of person actually really succeeds at recruitment because I've got a few friends who have who have gone into it and some of them have been really successful and then they've gone on to like start their own companies which is something we can talk about in a moment but um a lot of them have kind of uh gotten burned out really quickly just you know either doing cold calling or um you know so I wonder like what kind of person can actually get past the first sort of hurdle in the recruitment industry so it's a good question. Uh, there isn't really a one size fits all personality for the type of person that be, can be successful. It used to be when I started in this in business that it was only extroverts. So really outgoing, friendly, energetic people who loved meeting lots of people did well in this business. Um, but there's been a shift. Those people still exist but also really conscientious, diligent people who are able to go really deep into understanding a technical area mm -hmm. um, and are good communicators, but maybe prefer to communicate digitally using text message or email over phone are also doing well. But I think that some of the key traits that are required are you have to be a quick learner because okay. you're not only learning the industry of recruitment, but you're also learning the industry that you're covering. So that's two industries you have to learn, which is quite unique. You, the second point is that you have to have a natural curiosity mm -hmm. and the curiosity about people to learn about people and actually care about people. Even if you're maybe not the best at having lots of face-to-face -face communication, you still have to have a curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I suppose there is a lot of hard work involved in recruitment. It's not an easy job. In the early days, the hours can be very long. Um, that gets better as you develop your network and you're not starting every conversation with nice to meet you. Uh, but yeah, in the early days, definitely uh, the hours tend to be quite long. Yeah, it, it does seem like it's quite tough, especially in the early days. But then, like you said, once you've got a network, it becomes a lot easier. So uh, what are some of the ways that you, uh, especially like now during the pandemic, but even, you know, before and I guess hopefully after or soon, um, how do you go about actually meeting the right kinds of people and being able to get connected with people? Because I'm sure that can be difficult, especially if you don't speak Japanese all that well. Yeah, for, for, for us, for most of the positions that we have, uh, that we hire for, 
some level of Japanese ability is required. It does help um, a lot, even with internal communication, because we employ a lot of Japanese people in our company. So being able to speak to, to people internally. So that, that, that's one thing. But then to go back to your question on how people build their networks, I mean, there's one place we start is with LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a great tool for recruiters. So to be active, not only by connecting with people, but also by posting you know, adding content or, or your own even uh, opinion about content of the industry that you're covering or the industry, the recruitment industry itself is one way to do it. Uh, leveraging the networks of the people around you. So joining other people's meetings, getting to know people in their network and then expanding that into your network is another great way. Uh, and really it's about high volume, especially in the early days to develop a better level of quality as you move forward. So the more people you meet, in, in your industry in the early days of being a recruiter, the better because it'll get you to to give it'll give you a broader understanding of the industry that you're covering. Yeah, and um, tell me if this is true about LinkedIn. So I I didn't really use LinkedIn in Japan because there were so many recruiters on there <laughs> in the early days in Japan that it became kind of a bit frustrating because I would just constantly be having people I didn't know adding me saying like, Hey, you're looking for this kind of job. You know, once I got into marketing as well, like that was uh, something that I got right. more and more connections with. Um, is that still the case on LinkedIn that there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of uh, what would be the term? I don't know, like almost shameless recruiters are just like pushing and just like, Hey, 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 I've got a job, you know, and, and jumping on people. Or is that um, sort of something that they've dealt with and it's not as bad as that anymore? No. And if anything, it's probably, if I can, if you say bad, I guess, if anything, it's worse. I mean, there's probably more recruiters on LinkedIn right now than there's ever been. Um, it's a platform where recruiters go for talent and it's mm. a very easy place to connect to people. Um, the way that the, the fee model of LinkedIn is set up is that it's a subscription-based fee. So you pay a monthly fee and you can use the system basically as much as you want. Um, so it's different from a job board. Also, the people on LinkedIn are not necessarily looking for jobs. So the, the objective or the purpose of the system is different. Um, no, but I think that when, when, you, when you're using LinkedIn as a non-recruiter, if you're just on the platform, it, it's about filtering through the noise and being able mm. to know who, who to connect with and having, I believe, a couple of very strong recruiters in your network who know what your interests are and are constantly looking for you is a really powerful thing to have. It's a bit of a cheesy mm. line, but we say you need a doctor before you get sick, a lawyer before you get sued, an mm. accountant before you get audited, and a headhunter before you need a job. Yeah. The key people to have in your network. And I think it's good to have a really strong recruiter or two in your network. Yeah. And I guess that's also one of the reasons why that skill set of that you learn from being a recruiter is really helpful for people when they go on afterwards in their next business or whether they want to start their own company. Because what you're really learning is um, in a way you're kind of like doing a personal brand, I guess, on yes. things like LinkedIn, you're kind of showing people like, I know about this industry and you're posting up content. That's kind of a similar thing to what, you know, an influencer might do. Um, and so you learn that you kind of learn how to kind of create a branded message and how to reach people with something that actually gets them interested. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing you do, you learn is how to sell. So you, you create a brand in order to develop connections with people. Once you're in front of something, you need, from somebody you need to be able to sell. In many recruitment companies, you're paid in a way that's similar to running your own business. And so that's, you know, you, you eat what you kill sort of thing. It's a typical recruitment. Yeah. 
um, which is very much like being an entrepreneur. So there are many recruiters who go on to, to be successful entrepreneurs or recruiters that run unrelated side businesses while they're, while they're working as a recruiter. And so that the, the money that they're earning as a recruiter is funding a side business. Now, most companies will allow you to do that if it's not related to recruitment or HR, there's no conflicting interest. Right. So, I mean, of course, our company allows people to do that. We have a number of people that run side businesses, especially once they've developed their network. Recruitment takes up a lot of their time, but it doesn't take up all their time and they have time to do other things on the side. Hi everyone, I hope you're enjoying the conversation and I just want to take a quick moment to mention that this podcast is only possible because of the support of jobsinjapan.com. So next time you're looking for a job, check out jobsinjapan.com. There are tons of jobs on there, not only in English teaching, but also software engineering, hospitality, marketing and consulting, among many others. Most of the jobs on the board do not require any specific level of Japanese and you can get started in minutes. So next time you're looking for a job, check out jobsinjapan.com and let's get back to the conversation. Okay, so tell me a little bit like what it's like working as a recruiter, the sort of day-to-day stuff, because we get a lot of recruitment jobs on uh, jobs in Japan. And I think a lot of people maybe have no concept of what the day-to-day of that job looks like. You know, is it going to be like in the office all the time or is it like non-stop cold calling? People, I think people don't really have an image. And so um, they're not sure whether or not they should go into it, especially like, like you said, a lot of the recruitment jobs don't require you to have Japanese. You can go in, like if you're an English teacher or something and you want to switch up your industry, you don't want to be a teacher anymore. Recruitment seems to be like one of the ways out. So, um, so what does the day-to-day actually look like? So the initial step into recruitment, especially if you're somebody who's coming from outside of recruitment, for example, who's working as an English teacher and comes into recruitment, is not very glamorous. Your initial role will most likely to be candidate generation. It means that your job is going to be booking appointments for other consultants. And the reality is there's not much more that you're capable of doing if you're coming from a completely non-related industry because a recruitment company is not just going to put you in front of a candidate or a client when yesterday you're teaching english and all of a sudden you're a tech recruiter so the the best way to learn the business is to learn how to source candidates which is one skill which is really necessary to be successful as a recruiter so your job a typical day if you're working as like an associate consultant or a researcher resourcer companies call them different things would probably start with meeting with the consultants in your in your team finding out what their focus roles are for the day and then coming up with a search strategy and based on the position it could be different ways it could be calling existing candidates in the database to find out what their current situation is and to see if they'd be interested in hearing about this opportunity it could be going on to linkedin and trying to connect with people to develop your network there it could be cold calling it's still something that we do do um, so call, cold calling means calling into a company and trying to make appointments with people who it's an unsolicited sales call, right? Mm. And so that they weren't, they weren't expecting it. You're calling them, you're trying to, to make an appointment with them. Uh, once you've developed a certain amount of proficiency in candidate sourcing, they'll probably then add another skill, which would be actually doing meetings and interviews with candidates. So, so you've then will have shadowed interviews with a consultant and then you can start leading the interviews and then once they feel the company feels like you've reached the proficiency there then you'll probably be promoted to what we call a 360 role and 360 means you're looking you're talking to clients and candidates and you have somebody sourcing candidates for you so it's the progression of the role Um, but generally when we when we're hiring somebody completely from outside of the industry 
who has no sales experience as well, like an English teacher or a new graduate, that's how we would start. And that's how most companies start is focus on candidate generation. Interesting. So I guess um, a lot of that is going to be research skills as well, but you're building a lot of those interesting, useful and very like very transferable skills, you know, like being able to do research and also being uh, open and able to be kind of rejected and to not take that personally. Um, you know, I think a lot of people uh, have like a fear of that, but like once you've done that for even just like a few weeks, you just like, okay, I'm going to call like 10 people and you know, two of them will talk to me or something. And then the rest of them will uh, tell me they're not interested, but you, you just get used to that. And then you're a lot more confident actually having these conversations where people will say no. Like it, the funny thing is that, especially with, you know, I'm, I'm in my early forties. So when I say younger, I mean, people who are like just graduating from university, uh, when we hire new graduates, younger, new graduates, like they don't talk on the phone. Mm. with their friends with their family you know they, they just don't communicate that way so yeah in the early days we have to get them used to making phone calls we've had new graduates like calling and asking for information at restaurants about booking a party and stuff just to get them comfortable speaking on the phone before we actually have them doing things like cold calling but those people once they get used to cold calling and i know it's this typical thing that you, th you can just imagine people sitting around and like being driven to make these calls but you get through that phase and you develop a fluency with the way that you're speaking and your confidence and a comfortable getting comfortable with rejection and you're you have that forever mm. and so it's sort of a path that you have to walk as a as a new recruiter uh but there's a ton of benefit to it i believe yeah. Okay. So what would be some of your advice for someone who just got a new recruiting job then? Like maybe they're fresh out of university or maybe they're making the switch from, uh, you know, something else like English teaching to recruiting. Um, what would be some advice you would give them to kind of be more successful at it or do better at it more quickly than if they didn't have any advice at all? There's two, probably two things. The first one would be uh, whatever industry that you're covering, go deep and learn as much as you can about it. Get obsessed with learning about that industry, even if you're not interested in it. Like I, I covered the life sciences industry when I was working as a recruiter. I don't know, I mean, I did. I, there wasn't disinterested, but I didn't have a high level of interest in the pharmaceutical industry before I became a pharmaceutical recruiter. But I went deep, I learned a lot about it and it helped me become a more successful recruiter more quickly. Mm -hmm. The second one is, trust the process of the company that you're working for. So if the person above you, the team manager says like, this is the way that we run our searches. This is the way that we do that. And you can see the people around you getting success out of it, master that process and then start, you know, bringing yourself into it. But first of all, just really learn to do it the way that the company wants you to, and then be creative and innovative with it. I find that, uh, especially new recruiters of this, this generation tend to want to try to um, innovate or try new things before that they've mastered the basics. So let's get those basics right, but then be really innovative and, and challenge the way things are done. But first understand how they're done. Yeah, I think that might be a generational thing as well. Like um, uh, I, I definitely felt that going into schools in the beginning when I was a teacher and uh, thinking like I knew better and, you know, I'd see what they were doing and they, they, uh, I always thought 
I could do this better than they could, like just from thinking from first principles. But sometimes there are a lot of, um, sometimes there are you know, mistakes that people make and then they just kind of get hard coded into the, the culture of a company. Sure. Um, and, that, and that does happen. Um, but uh, often it's the, the rules are there for a reason, like something happened and they needed to find a way to fix it, you know, and make sure it didn't happen again. So um, how would you, how would you find out which of those rules are like breakable or bendable? And how would you find out how to, because I guess some people would go into a recruiting company thinking I'm going to make tons of money. I'm going to get like more clients than all my uh, colleagues or something, and then uh, find out that it's really, really hard. So right. um, how do people kind of like put themselves above the curve and, and make a little bit more money than they would be expecting to normally? Um, find out who's, I mean, every recruitment company, even if the recruitment company isn't that it's successful, will have a certain group of consultants that are just much better than everybody else. It's yeah. the way that this business works. Your top performers are doing five or six times the average billing in the, in the company. It's just like, always you have these outliers right. and what I did as a new recruiter and what I suggest other people to do is to find those people and spend as much time with them as possible trying to learn how they are doing what they're doing but also how they got there themselves because if you try and imitate what they're doing now you probably don't have that skill level to do it and that's where people will fail because they want to jump these steps but ask them about like how they came to be into that position and what their journey was like. And often you'll hear about like a lot of cold calling at the beginning or a lot of these things that, you know, maybe people are resistant to do. And then you can see that this is part of the journey of becoming um, a really good recruiter. Right. It's building a foundation. Right. And, and I think um, there's a term for that uh, called the Pareto principle. Um, okay. that I think a lot of people have heard of um, or, or some people have heard of, especially if you're into like entrepreneurial stuff or if you listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast. Um, but it's the, uh, people often call it the 80-20 rule where it's like 20% of, uh, of people get like 80% of the results. Um, and the Pareto principle, I think it's, uh, it's actually a mathematical thing that makes a lot of sense. You look at it, a lot of different industries, a lot of different things where there's a metric of performance. It's the square root of the number of people who are doing it do half of all of the output. So like if there's a hundred people in a recruitment company, 10 of them are doing half of the business, like half of the money coming in. And I think that's true in most industries. So I'm sure like recruitment is, is the same. Yeah, that, that I, don't, I, I don't know the numbers, the math off the top of my head, but it, that, that sounds like in line with what recruitment yeah. All right. So how do people, uh, the people who are working recruitment companies get paid? So there's, I'd say three or four different commission systems for recruitment companies. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one, let's call it a bonus system. And this is generally what happens in a registration style recruitment company that has high overheads because of all the money they're spending on marketing. And a, one of these companies will charge, I mean, will pay a percentage of your base salary. So it could be 15% or 20% of your base salary, plus some maybe other, um, you know, additional campaigns and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's, there's a, a, a capped earning potential because, you know, it's, it's based on your base salary. The second is called a discretionary bonus. And a discretionary bonus is, in theory, an uncapped incentive, but there's a number of 
calculations that are done behind the scenes that you're not aware of, it's not transparent, that determines your bonus. And it could be like the overall performance of the company, the performance of the division that you're in, the performance of your team, and the performance of you as a person in that team. So if your individual performance is excellent, but the company is not having a good quarter, then they won't pay you a very good bonus. Um, because they're trying to maintain a certain level of profitability. So the company gets paid first. The third type is in the incentive scheme, which is just based on an uncapped calculation of a percentage of your revenue. Okay. And there's a bunch of different ways to calculate it, but one of the typical ways is what's called a draw. And a draw system means that you repay your base salary out of your incentives. So let's say you make 400,000 in a month. So your quarterly draw would be 400,000 times three, right? Because three, three months is a quarter. So 1.2 million yen. And let's say your revenue was 10 million yen in the quarter and your commission rate is 35%. So 10 million yen times 35% is 3.5 million. That's your incentive. But then you have to repay your draw out of that 3.5 million. So that 3.5 million, that 1.2 million gets subtracted and you're paid 2.3 million yen. Okay. There's two kinds of draws. There's a draw that gets carried forward, a rolling draw, which means you can be, you can get negative numbers. Oh, wow. So you go like six months without billing. You're like, you know, you become 2.4 million yen that you owe the company and people wow. get really frustrated and they, they quit when this happens often. Um, or you have what's called a forgiving draw or a resetting draw, which means your draw can never be more than your three months salary. So it's always okay. like three months. And so that's just how it's calculated going forward. So once you get a really experienced consultant who's working in a draw system, base salary means nothing to them. It's all about the percentage, the commission percentage. Right people could end up in a lot of trouble with that, right? Like you could end up, if you're not very good at your, and I guess like this is a pure meritocracy kind of system because you could end up like literally owing the company money because you haven't done anything, you haven't performed. Yeah, so owing money means like out of your incentive. So you don't actually have to repay them like out of your right, right. But yeah, no, but yeah, you know, it is, it does end up frustrating people. Mm. Um, because they realize they get to a point and they realize like, okay, in order for me to get out of the hole, which is like recruitment slang for out of, you know, to pay back your draw, it's going to, I have to bill like this unrealistic amount. And so people get frustrated and they quit. Mm-hmm. And that's also probably the intention of that kind of incentive plan is because you don't want people to continue to, to underperform. Right. Right. Uh, Ronstadt's incentive plan is not like that. We have a, a commission rate with a forgiving draw. So your draw can never be more than one point three times your base, um, three times your monthly base. And so it's, it's a really good system. Uh, I think at least, yeah. and then team managers will get a percentage of what the team bills in addition to what they don't, they bill. So it sort of works like this. Yeah. That's awesome. You can, you can end up making a lot of money, but you can also end up uh, in a in a tough position, um, you said that was a fourth type. So that was the third type was the uh, the draw. Um, yeah. So I, I, when I said I said three or four. So there's the uncapped incentive plan, but then there's like a number of variations of the uh, incentive plan. So one of the ins- would be with a draw. Mm-hmm. The other would be like um, what's called a tiered system. 
So if you bill between this amount and this amount, you get a percentage of it. Okay. From this amount to this amount, you get a higher percentage. Okay. This this amount a higher percentage. So as you go to these next tiers, the percentages increase. And so okay. you're trying like you keep keep the people motivated to billing more and more and more. So that's why like the last two two weeks of a quarter in a recruitment company are very intense mm. because it's literally like the difference to you know millions of yen that come down to like did the candidate sign that the offer letter um, on you know uh, so like March thirty first or April first it becomes a new quarter so it's like <laughs> a very diff- different uh, wow very different thing yeah. That's that's pretty intense. It's like the reverse of income tax. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, taxes is another big thing that recruiters have to think about because you can go from making four million yen as an English teacher one year to making fifteen or twenty million yen the wow. next year. Very successful, but that means like all your taxes are in a right. different situation. Oh, I've had I've I've had that experience too. Like um, going from like last year where I was making really great money and I had like a, um, a, a bunch of extra clients and stuff. And then the, the pandemic happened and then uh, my yearly income went down, but I still had to pay because the tax is based on your previous year's income. So I had the income tax and the, uh, and the, um, the city tax, the city tax is the one that hurts the most because that one was based on last year. And I was just like, Oh my, and it's by quarter. And you see that bill and it's like, that's like, that's like a month's salary right now. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it can, it can be a little bit stressful, but I guess if you're good, you, you know, you do your best to like keep up. And I hope, you know, if you have a good company, they'll, they'll uh, try to be more reasonable. If, um, if uh, you know, something like the pandemic happens, like a black swan event where, you know, people are kind of struggling no matter what. Yeah. You know, it, the taxes, when, you know, the old saying about death and taxes, you know, it's only to, constants in in life right and um it's a big issue for recruiters because you have to maintain the consistency and we employ a lot of young people and they get a bunch of money and they like to party and travel Mm. (laughs) tax bill comes (laughs) the next year and uh yeah no it's it's part of it we we try and do financial education with the people um our HR department will do training on taxes so that people are suddenly earning a lot more money. They understand how it works. So they have savings to pay for those taxes. We, we have a group of people that runs an investment club. So we share ideas about different kinds of investments or strategies to um, mitigate taxes. But to be fair, I mean, it's a nice problem to have, right? Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> I've got so much money and my taxes are high. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I mean, that's, it's been absolutely great speaking with you about this because I, like I said, before we started the podcast, I didn't really know anything about the recruiting industry and I've never really thought of going into it because I'm kind of an introverted person. Like I can do the extrovert stuff. Like for this podcast, I can like sit down and like focus and talk to one person. But if I had to do this all day, I think I would like be really drained. But for people who are kind of like maybe able to, to talk with more people, um, I think, yeah, it seems like a really great way to make a, a ton of money, especially in Japan. Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, if you like talking to people and you, and you like working with clients, it's not just about the money. Um, you know, we did focus on that a bit because I think it's it, for people outside of the industry, it's important to know, but yeah. the job itself is very fulfilling. Um, you help people, you help clients grow their organizations. Uh, you learn a lot. I mean, cause we get access to very successful, smart people and we get to hear their stories. And so you learn a lot from them. So I, I, I think it's a great business. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. So where can people find you if they want to find out more about either the work that you're doing at Randstad or um, more about the recruiting industry? Yeah, so probably LinkedIn. Uh, it's, the, it's the best place. Cameron Bratt, that's what I use for my professional network is on LinkedIn. So definitely they can connect with me there. Uh, my email address is cameron.brett, two T's, at Randstad, R-A-N-D-S-T-A-D dot C-O dot J-P. So you can also send me an email directly. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you.